Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. With the crypto regulatory climate heating up in the U.S., I decided to cool off by heading north, and I sit down with Dean Skirka, who's the president and interim CEO at WonderFi, Lorian Gabel, who's co-founder and CEO at Figment, and Figment's chief regulatory officer, Jenny Levin. We discuss Canada's innovative approach to crypto regulation, and in particular, the new crypto staking offering from WonderFi. We get into the details on protocol staking on the Ethereum network, and how that differs in important ways from other programs, like interest-paying lending, or being a DEX liquidity provider that are often incorrectly lumped together as crypto yield activities. These differences impact custodians, technology providers, and most importantly, the regulatory approach. We also compare Canada's comprehensive approach to crypto regulation that seems to enable well-run businesses to offer crypto products, and how that approach was born from a large exchange fraud that happened way back in 2019. If staking and Canadian crypto regulation is exciting to you, head down to the show notes where you'll find additional articles, videos, and press releases outlining many of the episode's hot topics. Today we've got a full house, exciting topic. I'm joined by the CEO of Figment, Lorian Gabel, CEO of WonderFi, Dean Skirka, and the Chief Regulatory Officer at Figment, Jenny Levin. Welcome to the show, everybody. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I think, Dean, WonderFi is doing something that might mystify most American crypto enthusiasts. Your company is not only publicly traded, but also seemingly accepted by Canadian regulators. For folks not in the Canadian market, can you maybe give us some quick background on WonderFi and the business and your role at the company, how you arrived at WonderFi? Yeah, WonderFi, as you mentioned, is publicly traded on the Toronto Stock Exchange. And, you know, I think as you touched on, Canada has been you know, more at the forefront of adopting crypto and putting the guardrails in place, whether it's publicly traded companies like WonderFi or some of the first Bitcoin ETFs like 3IQ. Canada's really always been at the forefront. And WonderFi itself primarily today owns and operates two regulated crypto trading platforms, being BitBuy and Coinberry. BitBuy is where I came from. I, I was there in January of 2018 as the head of finance and compliance, which, you know, was a lot of fun, as you can imagine, in those early days. And today, really, WonderFi is focused on providing Canadians with compliant and safe access to the digital asset industry. As I've mentioned, you know, I think we're in a favorable jurisdiction, given that Canadian regulators have put in the guardrails. They've started with crypto trading platforms, which really are the engine of all of the activity that's generated, you know, at least today in the uh, crypto industry. And so our focus is, uh, you know, to continue to roll out products in a regulated manner that provide Canadians with access to products and services that they otherwise would look offshore or to other jurisdictions to participate through. And in doing so, we think we're really providing a safe, compliant environment for Canadians to participate in this industry. Awesome. We're going to get more into some of the business strategy and the products and services you're able to offer as we get further into the podcast. But I want to introduce our other two guests. Lorian, I was reading your bio and I realized there's now two data points that to me indicates a trend of Canadian entrepreneurs who own sporting goods stores. I believe you own one in Wyoming and, and that's, I think, the founding story around Shopify, if I've got the details right. There's two of us with bad judgment? Uh, apparently. <laughs> All jokes aside, you've had a fantastic career prior to Figment, a number of successful exits, but I think Figment may be flying a little bit below the radar for some of our listeners because similar to Chainalysis, more of a back-end service. As a retail player, I may not necessarily be familiar, even if I'm using your technology behind the scenes in some ways. So maybe give us a quick overview of why you started the company and what you all do in the crypto ecosystem. 
Great observation. Obviously, retail, sporting goods store is not my main line of business, but between startups, for some reason, thought it would be a good idea when I moved to Wyoming. But no, myself and our co-founders is our fourth infrastructure company going back more than three decades, which is a little painful to say, I have to say, but all Canadian startups. And we had a national data center company, one of very early ISP kind of pre-browser, cloud security company. And this is kind of by way of saying that we really come out of the infrastructure space, not the financial space. And so we each had our individual reason for being interested in blockchain and digital assets and crypto. Me personally, I had sort of, because I've been old enough to have been around from the original internet and the original vision of a P2P communication system to what it's become, which is pretty highly centralized, both our financial system and large data providers like Google, et cetera. And was really seeing sort of a corruption of that original vision. And I thought perhaps this technology could be a counterbalance to that. So that, that's kind of my personal motivation for being in the business. And then because we come out of infrastructure, staking is kind of natural. You know, we're used to dealing with security, large networks, complicated networks, and networking. And so it was kind of the natural place for us to enter the business. Yeah, amazing. And last, certainly not least, Jenny, your your background, I'm fascinated to understand the transition from U.S. attorney into the world of Web3, jumping in, into the deep end of the pool. I, I'd love to hear a little bit about your journey and, and the role that you play at Figment now. Sure. So I was fortunate enough to get a job at DraftKings after I left the U.S. Attorney's Office. And this was just after PASPA was overturned by the Supreme Court. And so there were a lot of regulatory issues surrounding rolling out sportsbook in the individual states. And so my path at DraftKings started with working on these regulatory and legal issues surrounding casino and sportsbook. Um, and to some degree, daily fantasy sports. But I was able to work with Paul Lieberman, who who is one of the founders, and he had a strong interest in Web3 and in NFTs. And I was able to work with him and his product team, who are amazing, to develop and create their NFT marketplace. And that was sort of my first forte into the Web3 environment. It was fascinating. It was exciting. I was able to try to take existing legal principles and extrapolate those and apply them to novel areas, which I think is super exciting. And that's what I get to do at Figment too, albeit in a, in a slightly different context context in the world of proof of stake, but we really deep dive into all sorts of regulatory issues because our customer base is so varied. And so we have to be familiar and it's a fun space to be in, to be able to navigate these uncertain waters and try to keep up with the ever-changing environment. For people that haven't checked out the DraftKings NFT marketplace, they've come up with some really, I think, novel NFT into gaming intersection points. Like if anyone that's played fantasy sports before, you kind of draft a team and then you, based on their real world performance, you score and win or lose against your friends. I usually lose. But I think the NFT games are driven off where you can actually acquire players and there's a bit more ownership structure there that I think makes the, the game more interesting. It's, it's definitely on the cutting edge of actually using NFTs to do stuff, which is very neat. Yeah. And, you know, we started out obviously just selling yeah. NFTs. Um, and then as we dug into that, it was a very complicated area of law in terms of having utility and not being a representation of a security um, and how that integrated with real world play and the games that were being played as well. So it prepared you well for the, uh, the challenge of is it a security? Is it a commodity? Is it an investment product or not that I think you're faced with every day at Figment, right? 
It absolutely did. And it, it showed me the importance of working with the product team and the engineering team hand in hand. And we have an amazing team at Figment. They have an incredible amount of patience with me and they include me and I'm able to figure out how do we work the problem? How do we make a small tweak to something to lower the risk, but also be able to provide the service to our customers? And I think that that's been invaluable. Working at DraftKings was an invaluable experience for me. And now working with the team at Figment has just been an incredible opportunity as well. That's outstanding. We're going to come back to some of those product features and what Figment's building. But Dean, I think you undersold on Wonderfy a little bit. You know, you and I had the chance to hang out in Toronto and then recently around Bitcoin Miami. You know, my takeaway from those conversations were, you know, Wonderfy is building the largest domestic exchange and probably the safest place to do anything with crypto, whether you're retail, institutional, mining. Talk a little bit more about the business and some of the things that are on the horizon. I know there's a couple of big acquisitions and in the works now. We announced the acquisitions of CoinSquare and CoinSmart back in April, and we'll be hoping to close those transactions in short order. And that just continues, you know, along the path that WonderFi has been on, starting with the acquisition of BitBuy in March of 2022, and then following that on with the acquisition of CoinBerry and Blockchain Foundry later that year. We're really looking to consolidate the you know, best platforms in Canada and really just ensure that we have sufficient market share and scale. And the scale point is important because Canada is by nature a very very small market. Many people like to say it's the size of California, which doesn't help me sleep at night. But that being said, when you have a smaller market to begin with and you layer on all of these costs for compliance, for regulation to maintain those good standings, you know, scale really is important. And certainly as we've seen in the bear market, if you will, when volumes dry up and you have to maintain that good standing with the regulators and maintain all of those compliance practices, you know, as I've mentioned, scale it really is important. And from a Wonderfy perspective, we really believe, you know, on the back of these two actors acquisitions that we really will have the scale needed to not only survive and be uh, successful during bear markets, but really well positioned in better markets, which we do believe will come. And, you know, so we're really excited about bringing all of these companies together. It's certainly not an easy task at all. You're dealing with personalities, you're dealing with different technology stacks, different providers for certain vendor solutions. And so we have our work cut out for us. We really see a path forward to being the clear leader in Canada for digital assets, whether that's the trading side or the OTC side or staking and new products that we're going to look to roll out in the coming months and years. We really think that our footing in this market will give us the ability to do that and roll out these products that our clients are looking for. I love this story because it's one that I've been talking about as a trend for at least the last year, which is in a down market, you see a flight to quality, right? Investors want to be with the safe choice. They want to be with the biggest players in the market who have the best services, most capabilities and greatest likelihood to still be here a year to five years from now. And so the actual consolidation phase, I think, is really just beginning in a lot of markets. You're a bit of ahead of the curve, I would say, in Canada, but the outcome is exactly what I'm expecting to see replicated in other parts of the world. Well, yeah, and it's interesting, too, because at the same time, what we've seen over the last few months is, uh, you know, large international platforms actually leaving the Canadian market, citing regulatory costs or the significant changes that their business would need to undertake to be compliant in Canada. And so, you know, we're really starting to see the benefits of not only the larger players leaving, but the balancing act of platforms like ours being regulated over the last two years, the significant costs that we've had to undertake, as I've sort of mentioned, all the while these international platforms are continuing to operate in Canada and continuing to offer for their products and services, albeit without the same regulation in place. And so it's good to finally see this thesis playing out where you know regulation does matter to a certain extent and having that first mover advantage and having those relationships with the regulators in Canada is certainly going to be part of the long-term competitive advantage that we think we'll have. 
I'd love to pull on that thread a little bit because we're hearing a couple different narratives, right? In in the U.S. market, to contrast, people are saying, hey, we need regulatory clarity. I think in Canada, you've actually gotten regulatory clarity and a lot of people are going, oh, okay, it's now clear, but that's a very high burden and I can't afford to do that. It kind of impinges my ability to make money, I think. But obviously you've navigated through those waters successfully. Licenses as a broker-dealer, I think now have a staking license in one of the arms of the business like talk to me about how you've been able to achieve that because i think that's pretty monumental and could be a pattern for a lot of people listening there's a few things there. I think from a business perspective, when I joined at BitBuy, we were really focused on the long term. We weren't looking to cut any corners. We wanted to establish strong banking relationships. We wanted to have our partners and vendors understand our business model and how we intended to operate. So we were always laser focused on doing things right and building for the long term. And I think all of that really adds up, you know, when you convey that and walk, you know, your regulators through some of the stuff you've done prior to complying with regulation. And so it all sort of comes together to tell the story of the company and who you're trying to be as a business. You know, I look at years past when companies like Voyager and Celsius, you know, they're on a rocket ship and they're offering these yield products and, you know, you're sitting back and wondering why uh, you're in Canada and you're, you know, sort of complying with laws and, and regulation that really isn't in place yet. And now fast forward a few years, obviously that slow and steady approach certainly has uh, seemingly paid off for now. You know, in terms of Canada and the U.S., I, I always sort of like to think Canada had its FTX moment in 2019 when a uh, crypto trading platform famously went out of business. And I think, you know, sort of what you're seeing now, this heavy handed response to not only FTX, but some of the other platforms that, you know, unfortunately went bust last year is not too dissimilar from what you saw in Canada. And so I think for right or wrong reasons, Canada had this moment a few years prior and were able to be pretty responsive in terms of establishing some framework to start with and then look to, you know, industry to kind of evolve over time. Jenny, what do, what do you think about that perspective? Are we having our moment here in the U.S. and two, three years down the line, we'll have the peaceful, happy regulatory environment that exists in Canada? Or is that too optimistic? I think that is quite optimistic. I think that the way that the Canadian government or the provinces are all working together and the way that the Ontario Security Commission are handling their approach to cryptocurrency is very different. Now, perhaps if the U.S. government and regulators and everyone could work together in a way that the Canadian regulators and and legislature were able to do, then we could achieve that. But I think there's a fundamental difference in approach. And I think it's because when you take a look at the notices and the guidance and the and the rules that are in place in terms of like what is being offered in Canada, it's not introducing, you know, new rules specifically applicable to these crypto trading platforms, to marketplaces, to dealers. What they're trying to do is take the existing regime but make it very very tailored to the needs of the companies that are operating there because they really recognize the need to foster innovation. And so they take a look literally at every single company and figure out what's their business model. They take the time to get in the weeds, right? And doing that adds the benefit of making a tailor-made solution to the company. And so I think that that's like a very big benefit because they're willing to actually understand. And I think that their regulatory sandbox provides a lot of help. You know, we were talking about path and, and is it cost prohibitive to follow the regulatory regime in Canada? There are ways you can approach it if you're not in a position where you have the infrastructure and the financial reserves to register as a full dealer or a marketplace there. You can take advantage of the regulatory system. You can take advantage of being a restricted dealer. 
feel it, like that I did. You know, there are ways to approach it. Back to answer your question, I think the problem is in the United States, we are not being true to offering any type of regulatory sandbox. We are not taking the time to open our ears and listen and figure out what is actually needed and what's not. Instead, we are just trying to take a, a square peg and shove it into a round hole. And nobody wants to listen and, and change their minds. They're so set on their convictions that it's there's so much tension there. So I'm yeah. not as optimistic. I was deeply hoping for some optimism to come from you, but I have to admit in the last few months, it feels like in the US, we're not having a debate about how do we get to regulatory clarity? We're having a debate about, is it legitimate to hold crypto as an asset? Like that is actually what's being really argued about. And there's people who are saying, no, 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 this is a thing that should just go away, which seems unrealistic as an outcome, but that still appears to be the argument we're having. But I, I want to shift gears, Lorian, and come back to you. Talk to us a bit about Figment's business. You touched on earlier the layer in the stack, but like, how have you actually built the company? Who are you working with? Obviously, great partnership here with Wonderfy. What do you actually do for them? And how does that in turn lead to you know, services and products that I as a, an end user might experience? Yeah, right. I appreciate the question. Just looping back a little bit on the last question of what Jenny was saying, I'd, I'd like to think, like as Winston Churchill said, that the Americans will do the right thing after they've exhausted all of their possibilities. I'm slightly more optimistic, although not necessarily in the right time frame, that eventually we'll have a workable framework in this country, at least in an election later, perhaps. So cautiously optimistic in that respect. So yeah, Figment, what do we do? Um, there's been a, you know, just taking a step back, there's been a pretty significant change in how blockchains operate over the last five to six years. Um, everyone might be or is probably familiar with proof of work, which is, you can think of it as, it's called a consensus mechanism. It's really like an operating system for blockchains. Technical engineers will be mad at me for using that word and that analogy. But essentially, you've heard about, you know, Bitcoin mining, consumes a lot of electricity in some circumstances. Uh, some people have some green concerns around that and a lot of computing power. And about five years ago, people were looking for alternative ways to essentially operate a blockchain with the same outcomes around distributed security and producing blocks and maintaining the blockchain. Um, and so that was something called proof of stake. And really it accomplishes the same thing as what happens when you're a Bitcoin miner, providing a essentially distributed, secure, decentralized ledger, but with a lot less computing resources and perhaps more scalability. So what we do is there are still computers involved in that process. If you need to know one difference between proof of work and proof of stake, perhaps, is that in proof of work, you have miners. With proof of stake, essentially, if you have 32 ETH, you can participate in running Ethereum. You can run a node, you can secure the network and process transactions. So that's a pretty big difference. It really brings together the function of a token holder and actually being able to participate in running the so, you know, as an individual, all of us on this call could probably figure out how to run an Ethereum node. Maybe not me, but everyone else, given enough time, could, could, could figure out how to do it. I want to clear it up. But if you're a large fiduciary, if you're someone like Wonderfly that has hundreds of millions, plus billions of Ethereum that's been staked on the platform, it's very difficult to do at scale. So we provide a security framework, we scale that infrastructure, um, and we run those nodes and provide a set of services around like reward, re reward reporting and interfaces, um, API connections for our partners. So basically, we deal with large holders or parties who have large holders as customers and basically run that very complicated infrastructure on their behalf. 
Just to unpack this for maybe some of the less technical folks in the audience, I think at a basic concept level in Ethereum, it used to look like Bitcoin, where you had a, a miner just running a, an Ethereum node on the network and you would collect fees or, or rewards for creating a block that ended up as part of the chain. We had this transition last year from that proof of work to now this proof of stake, where in order to run a node, I have to deposit 32 ETH into the node. And so there's a, a higher capital requirement, but it also creates an incentive system where if I'm a bad node operator, my node goes down all the time, it doesn't behave by the rules, it double signs transactions, all sorts of bad stuff, I'll actually suffer a financial penalty, which I think in the industry term of the art is called striking. Slashing, Slashing. sorry, I was, I was right yeah. there, man. It's bad as close, <laughs> it's as bad as sound, or, or misrewards, yeah. one of those two. Yeah. Attack. And so there's still the capability. I think some people have said, wow, 32 ETH, that's that's a lot of money. Maybe not within reach of your average open source hobbyist that just has a you know workstation under their desk. And they want to throw some s software on it. On the other hand, the role you're taking on running a, a validation or a block producer node, pretty important one, right? Because we've now got billions and billions of dollars worth of value tied into the Ethereum network. We all want that to be super reliable. And so now you have this scenario where people have a lot of Ethereum that they would like to participate in the network security by depositing it, but they may not have the technical skills or the physical hardware, the servers or the data center capacity to actually run this. And so now they look to other people to do that on their behalf. And so I think the relationship with WonderFi is like, I can be a customer of WonderFi and I have ETH deposited with Dean and uh, I'm like, yeah, I'm not doing anything with that right now. It's just sitting there. I can deposit or ask Dean say, hey, I want to move this into a staking service, I think. And then that accrues the network reward to me. So there's kind of a service provider relationship there. And when the technical back end, if I understand this correctly, that's actually Figment doing all the work operating on the, the nodes on the back end behind the WonderFi service. Is, have I gotten all that close? Yeah, there's a couple important things to note. However you hold your Ethereum, whether it's with WonderFi or self-custody or ledger, when you stake those assets, you don't give those assets to your provider as us. So we're entirely non-custodial. So we're not a counterparty in a sense that if for some reason we were to disappear, then there's any loss of funds. So however you're comfortable holding custody with those tokens, that doesn't change when you stake them, which is a big difference from, you know, Dean made some allusions to some other companies like Celsius, et cetera. And some, unfortunately, some of those programs were called staking. We can get into that a little bit, but they weren't actually protocol staking. They were like traditional borrow, lend with counterparty risk, etc. That doesn't exist with staking. You are really running the protocol. You have protocol level risk, i.e. something could go wrong with Ethereum, but you have that if you hold the token anyhow. So there's no additional risk other than if we don't do our job, you might miss some rewards, or if something really bad happens, there's a, a small portion in the slashing scenario, which we can talk about, um, which never happened to us, I need to knock on wood, and is a sort of very low risk scenario. But generally speaking, you don't have counterparty risk, which has been what happened with those other cases of companies blowing up. So it is really pretty much the safest and most useful thing you can do with your crypto if you're a long-term holder. Yeah, and I, th I think you, you hit on an important point there. I wanna make sure we don't gloss over, which is there's been a conflation of activity, I think on the band of maybe like earning yield, which has actually been, you know, it's, it's a series of very different actions. You've got a great blog that I think clears some of this up. We'll link to it in the show notes. But maybe if you can give us a quick summary of kind of the three categories of
of activity and how they differ from one another in terms of, of what it means to participate in the network consensus versus some of the other options that have maybe been lumped together incorrectly. Definitely. You know, as an industry, we've done a very poor job of defining terminology. And so, you know, pox on our house, etc. Um, and we've tried our best to talk about protocol staking as being different from lending or providing liquidity. But there's a bunch of things you can do with your digital asset. You can lend it out to someone and you have the counterparty risk. You can provide liquidity to a decentralized exchange and then you might have some risks associated with that or you can stake and actually help run the protocol itself and so we don't actually even consider that yield most of those rewards are inflationary i you're doing work and you produce the next block to oversimplify a little bit um, and so essentially you're protecting your relative position in the network and you're actually doing work by running that node and securing the protocol and processing the transaction therefore you earn a reward so we don't even really see it as yield in the traditional sense of a form of income for a passive income or anything like that it really is a very unique activity it's as if again there's probably a whole bunch of ways this analogy falls down as if you as a mastercard or visa holder instead of the bank doing the processing you could actually process some visa transactions and then share in those fees generated by that so it's not a perfect analogy, but that's the cool thing about blockchains is that they're permissionless and anyone can help run the blockchain. Anyone could set up a Bitcoin miner. This is a different way of doing that. I would certainly swap airline miles for a share of the interchange fee on my credit card. If I could pull off that agreement with Visa, I'm, I'm in for that. But I mean, I think it makes a great analogy about the decentralized nature of something like Ethereum that that's even available, right? These rewards don't accrue to a, a centralized organization, the operators of Ethereum. It, it's everybody that's operating nodes. I'm curious, how important is this protocol staking function to your business? Is this something that's, you know, a tiny piece for really high-end clients? Or is this, you know, something that people have broad interest in? Talk to us a little bit about how it's impacted what you do at Wonderfy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a good point that Lorian touched on earlier. You know, when we started this journey, because you know, as I mentioned, being a regulated platform, any new product services we want to offer have to go through the gauntlet of the regulators in Canada. So when we thought about how could we, you know, offer these types of services to our clients, you know, really comparing what a lot of people were doing with Borrow Lend at the time and doing it quite successfully compared to staking, one of the big elements in our decision making was the counterparty risk mitigation. And we thought that would really resonate with the regulators and give them uh, a lot of comfort in this solution. In terms of the solution itself, I mean, you look at the largest international crypto trading platforms out there, and this is table stakes. And, you know, the reason this is table stakes for them is because clients are keeping their assets on the platform and in aggregate that represents a significant amount of, of money. And giving these clients an ability to earn rewards on that is very attractive. You look at, you know, sort of the way your interest rates are today and, you know, the cost benefit of holding Ethereum, if you can just make four and a half percent on your dollars may not be there for some people, but if they're keeping them on the platform and they're long-term investors and they can earn rewards on the platform, it's a really compelling offering in my opinion. And something that we've seen really strong conversion rates on, which I think sort of supports that. I don't think this is something, as you mentioned, that necessarily is a certain high net worth or retail client specific product. I think it speaks to everybody and really ultimately it really resonates with the long-term holders. If I'm an Ethereum believer and I'm going to hold it for two years, five years, 10 years, and I now have an ability to earn rewards while I do so, 
so, it's a pretty um, compelling offer. And for us, it was all about just making it really intuitive for our users, educating them on the process and how it works. And, you know, to the other point earlier, how counterparty risk is mitigated and how it is safe and compliant. We really think this will be a really big growth opportunity for our business going forward. Certainly, you know, as we consolidate the platforms that we are acquiring into one platform, all of those users will now be able to stake through BitBuy as well. And, you know, for us, as we continue to list more tokens that are available to be staked, we just believe that this is this is a really exciting growth area for our business. Jenny, what Dean just described is in high contrast to what we've seen in the U.S. You know, Kraken, I think, just settled with the SEC recently to basically turn off their staking platform. What's going on between the U.S. and Canadian markets where we end up with two completely different views and outcomes here around staking? Or is it maybe that there's differences in the programs themselves? So I think, first of all, in Canada, the regulators have not said that offering staking as a service is a security. Let's make that perfectly clear. And it's our position that it's not under Canadian law, under United States law, under any international law. In the Canadian regulatory scheme, as part of being a restricted dealer, when you offer new products or services, you have to update your prospectus and you have to make sure that it's covered by the exemption that you offer. Are falling under. And so as part of that process, they reviewed the staking offering and we met with the Canadian regulators and they were able to parse through the product, ask a lot of interesting questions and ultimately gave their sign off. Not in the context of this is a security, we're giving you our sign off, but in the context of we believe there is sufficient investor protection here, consumer protection. And so we believe this is a, a safe, secure product for you to be able to offer bit by. And we believe that Figment providing this service enhances the quality and the safety and assures us that it will be offered correctly. So I think to answer your question, the difference is there's a misunderstanding in the United States based on these enforcement actions that are being brought as to what staking is. And so right now, I think there's a disconnect between Canadian and U.S. perceptions of what staking as a service is, the true protocol staking. And so therefore, there's a difference of opinion about these things. If the United States were able to sort of wrap its head around and understand what the Canadian regulatory bodies do, then I think that they would come to the same conclusion that this is not a risky product. You know, you can protect consumers. We're not seeing fraud associated with staking as a service. But I think that the issue is we need to educate the U.S., regulatory agencies, particularly the SEC, and we need to educate the legislature so, you know, new laws can be passed so it can encompass that. I think, you know, unfortunately, Kraken's program was called the staking program, and Lorian touched on this earlier, but the reality of the situation when you picked up the veil is that they were offering a, a rate of return, and they were having their customers provide them with these assets. They were using them in a multitude of ways, one of which was staking. But that was not the only way that they were being used. And so it much more closely resembled a investment contract where they were making decisions. How do we use this money to give them the promised return? Staking will be one way, but that's not going to be the only way. And I think that that's where the issue came from. I think that in general, though, you know, and I, I want to also just touch back and Lorian made the point that he's a bit more optimistic than me. I don't think people should run from the United States based on the current regulatory environment. I think that 
uncertainty isn't always a bad thing, right? Because as you said, you know, we don't want to be stuck with a regime in the United States that boxes people out of participating. We want it to be a good regime that's thought through and that is adaptable to the different types of businesses we see in this space. And that does take time and we will get there. In the meantime, though, we also don't want people to be afraid that they're going to be slapped with an SEC subpoena and a lawsuit because not everybody has the deep pockets to be able to fight that type of legal action. So I think there is definitely room to operate in the United States. I think that there are large markets to serve in the United States. And I think we will get to a point and we can navigate through the regulatory uncertainty if we're careful. And we structure our programs, particularly our staking as service programs, in a way that really gets back to basics. Let's mirror the protocol rules. You know, this is what BitBuy does. They are, are adherent to the protocol rules. They are basically a pass through to allow people to engage in staking, and they use us as their technical service provider behind the scene. And so the more we can structure programs like that, the more insulated we're going to be. Because again, we're not seeing hacking, we're not seeing fraud associated with these programs. It's a really great way for people to be engaged in the crypto blockchain space without running afoul of regulatory rules and security concerns. All great points to unpack there. Lorian, when we saw the, the merge happen and the shift to this proof of stake, there was a fair amount of news, I think, in the following months that articulated a concentration of staking providers, right? You weren't seeing very many individual node operators, but you saw a handful of providers, I think with varying business models, some that were maybe more retail focused, some that offered something known as liquid staking. But it looked like most transactions were being kind of routed through a handful, five, six staking providers. Is that situation still current? I haven't read nearly as much about this as I did in the immediate aftermath of the merge. And like, how do you think about that as an operator? Obviously, you want to grow your business, and I'm sure you think about things like market share. Great question. So first of all, Ethereum generally is probably, you know, along with Bitcoin, the most decentralized, has the most holders, you know, has a whole set of technical infrastructure that's varied, run in different places, different clients, etc. So Ethereum itself is very decentralized. With respect to the particular question about staking, I think most of that concern was around a liquid staking provider um, that mostly served consumers called Lido. And so really before the merge, if you wanted it to stake, this was really one of the easiest and only ways to do it effectively for an average Ethereum holder. So that protocol or that method of staking on Ethereum did accumulate a fairly large percentage of the protocol. Now it should be said that behind Lido is a whole set of infrastructure providers. So it's not one entity, it's a DAO and then behind it there's a whole like 10, 15, 20 different infrastructure providers. So in fact, the stuff that we do is pretty decentralized. Lido's share um, is still, I think, too large, but that is changing post-merge. So what you're seeing is a whole set of different ways of staking, people like us, people doing it on their own through self-custody, etc. So I think that that is changing. But yes, I think that was the original concern. Really, they had like a predominant amount or that method had a predominant amount of the stake. It's still pretty large, but I am you know feel pretty good that it will decline over time. And it in itself is pretty decentralized. It's not yeah. like one provider running in Amazon East or something like that. 
So it, it, it is itself decentralized. To your question about market share, yes, there is a cap on how big we would want to get on Ethereum or any other protocol. So by its definition, I would be you know extremely skeptical of a digital asset or a blockchain where one set of nodes or infrastructure was run by one centralizing force had 30 or 40 percent or even 20. You know, we're a couple percentage points and that makes us pretty large, but there's just a natural cap on how big we would or could yeah. ever get. You touched on liquid staking there, which has been a topic that has fascinated me because I generally it felt like double counting money. And we did an episode last year with Mara Schmite from Alluvial, they're the liquid collective that they're part of. And she kind of unpacked this topic for me. At that point in time, we hadn't reached the moment of the unlock. And so liquid staking seemed almost necessary because you were locking your assets into the protocol. You had no idea when you could withdraw. We've now passed this withdrawal moment. Does liquid staking still need to exist? Is there utility in it, in your opinion? Or is that a point in time kind of momentary feature? Yeah, I think it's kind of a capital efficiency question, depending on the holder. So it doesn't need to exist. I think there are some holders who will essentially want to get a code check for their stake ETH and then perhaps do something with that code check. So yes, it is a, a layer on top of naked staking, core staking. And so I think you need to be cautious for a whole bunch of reasons that you're adding one layer of complexity. But I think there are certain institutions who will be like, hey, we have $100 million of Ethereum stake. We're going to get this code check a token back for it, and maybe we can do something with that, either borrow against it, et cetera. Again, I think it's probably for pretty sophisticated investors. I don't think the average ETH holder needs to really be focused yeah. on it, frankly. I have my own views on keeping things simple. But again, I think it's it's more like an institutional or large holder and not really for like a general small consumer type holder. But I think it'll play an important part in the yeah. ecosystem for that reason going forward. As we wrap up the show, I see we're running out of time. Jenny, what should we be thinking about in terms of regulatory landscape? Obviously, there's a lot of churn in the U.S. market, but there's some exciting things happening internationally. Mika just got passed in Europe. I know there's tons of things happening in the APAC region. Hong Kong seems to be reopening to crypto in an exciting fashion. Like, What's on your mind keeping you busy these days, and what should we be paying attention to looking forward? So all great points. I think one of the things that's on my mind is where is the market share? are going to go? Are people going to be afraid to engage in custodial staking in the United States. You know, we talked about the only way for blockchain technology, forget about just whether we should be owning crypto or not owning crypto, or if it plays a role in the financial industry, blockchain technology is not going to go anywhere, right? Tokenization of digital assets, healthcare, social platforms, email, there are so many uses for it. And none of that can survive without proof of stake and without running nodes and operating a staking service. And that shouldn't just be limited to certain classes of individuals or certain people who have the ability to do it from a technical know-how. Everybody should be able to participate in that. So we're trying to figure out how do we do it in a way that is not towing the line from a regulatory perspective. We're also very focused, and I think you know, on the APAC market, as you mentioned, and expanding internationally, we're happy to be working with WonderFi and BitBuy in Canada, and we think there's a great market there. So all options are on the table, and I guess I would just encourage everybody to make sure that you're partnering with a staking as a service provider or a custodian that you have trust in, that knows the regulatory landscape, and that you have open communication with, and that you guys are partners and have each other's backs to get through this tough time. That's great advice. Lorian, anything you want to add to Jenny's comments as we wind down? 
No, I think that summarizes the state of play where we're at. You know, I really believe that this technology is important for all our digital futures in many ways. If you have a proof of stake token and you want to play around and actually participate and run the protocol, take a look at staking. That's awesome. Dean, I'm hoping here you're going to tell me you're expanding to the U.S. market, but I have a feeling that's probably not on the radar for the rest of the year. What is the things we have to look forward to for the rest of 2023 for Wonderfy? Now Jenny's talked some skins into me from going into the U.S. as soon as I had hoped, so it's no longer on the roadmap. But for Wonderfy, certainly have our hands full with closing of the acquisitions of CoinSquare and CoinSmart, which will be in short order, integrating those platforms and streamlining our, our operations and finding those synergies between the companies that obviously exist. And, you you know, more broadly than that, I think what we've seen with our staking license in Canada is that Canadian regulators can find a balance between product innovation and consumer protection. And so with that, we're really going to look to build on top of the products that we have, demonstrate to our regulators how and why we can do this in a safe and compliant manner, and continue to roll out the products and services around the digital asset industry that our clients are looking for. An important point is, you know, if we don't provide these services to our clients, it's not as if they're not going to find them elsewhere. And, you know, as we've seen with, you know, I hate to keep bringing up the cell CSs and the Voyagers, but when you don't provide these services or offerings in a compliant and safe manner, Canadian investors are going to look elsewhere to find them. They're inevitably going to find them, and that puts them probably in a less favorable position or in a position where there's less recourse in the event things do go wrong. And so for us, you know, we're really focused on rounding out the offering to really encompass all of what the Canadian investors are looking to do in the digital asset industry. Outstanding. Dean, Lorian, Jenny, this has been a fantastic conversation. I learned a ton. Slashing, not striking. Thanks so much for joining us on Public Key today. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. It was a pleasure. Hey there. Thanks for listening to another episode. Our team's been working hard to make our content available on all the major platforms. So do me a favor. Right now, take out your phone and open up your favorite social media app. You can subscribe to our new TikTok or our revamped YouTube. You can sign up for our LinkedIn newsletter. And of course, follow us on Twitter or Telegram. Just search for at Chainalysis on any of those platforms. This episode covered a lot about mining and the differences between proof of work and proof of stake. Chainalysis just released a blog post which explains that while crypto mining is a crucial part of many blockchain architectures, it's also caught the attention of some bad actors. To learn more about how sanctioned nation states and North Korean hacking syndicate Lazarus Group are abusing mining operations in an attempt to launder stolen cryptocurrency, go to the link in the show notes and read the full blog.